Thanks for watching this video. All right. So, that's our intro video for Ecclesiastes. I have a, another one for the very end once we're done. So, we want to look at the book of Ecclesiastes today. Some of the well-known verses that you probably have heard from the book of Ecclesiastes. Eat and drink and be glad. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Cast your bread upon the waters. There is nothing new under the sun. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. We all know that one. <laughs> Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Remember when I was a youth pastor in Keurig, I had some boys that uh, learned some blacks around. Uh, basically, the whole thing was that they were going to eat. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see is from the hand of God, for without him, who, who can eat or find enjoyment? And so, those are just some of the well-known phrases from the book of Ecclesiastes. Let's look at some introductory matters. As we get into this topic, the slide presentation should be uh, on the web. I believe I uploaded that for you. So, just a quick reminder for us. In the worldview of, of the Hebrews, in the biblical system, everything is connected to God. So, our ethics, rituals, governments, law, nature, cosmos, family, society, everything. So, in the wisdom literature genre that we're looking at, the book of Ecclesiastes is going to deal also with these real issues in life and how they're connected to God. What is the outlook that we are supposed to have um, related to that. Different types of wisdom literature. <clears throat> we look at Ecclesiastes and we look at the other aspects of wisdom literature that we have studied so far. Uh, you have proverbial wisdom, which obviously the book of Proverbs is proverbial wisdom. That's where it comes from. It's practical, it's condensed, short sayings. And then you have the others that are non-proverbial wisdom. So Job and Ecclesiastes, they're philosophical and they're speculative. We talked about that when we get to the book of Job. Um, they're trying to figure out based on life, based on what's going on and what's happened to me and our understanding of God, uh, what philosophy do we end up with? Like, how, how does this mesh together? How do we make sense of what's going on? And so you have extended discussions instead of short, condensed sayings. Again, it doesn't mean that just because it's on the right side of the screen that you cannot have a proverb in it, because actually you will. Uh, it just means that uh, as a layout for the genre, that's what we're looking at. One of the things that we also have with this particular book of Ecclesiastes is that it's part of the scrolls or the megaloth. These were uh, five, five scrolls that were read at the five different uh, feasts or festivals that the Israelite people would uh, partake in. So our second half of our class today, we will look at the book of Songs or Song of Solomon. And you can see that one was uh, read at Passover. Ruth is at Pentecost. Lamentations celebrates the, I shouldn't say celebrates, is about the fall of, of Jerusalem and lamenting over that. That's what it was used for. Ecclesiastes, though, is where we're at. So Ecclesiastes was um, read at Tabernacles. That's a week-long celebration. It uh, remembered and reminded the people of what God had done as he had set them free uh, from the Egyptians. And that is approximately uh, in September. It's another the fall um, feast or festival. The last one is Esther with Purim. Um, but the point for us is that it's one of these five scrolls that was read annually um, for 
religious calendar for the nation of Israel. The other thing I just want to remind you of is our wisdom lit circle here is that Ecclesiastes is dealing with the meaning of life. So if Job looked at the moral structure, Psalms are about your relationship with God, Proverbs are society and family, Song of Solomon is going to be love and sex, we're talking Ecclesiastes, um, the meaning of life. Okay? And is it, as everybody has heard, you know, meaningless, everything is just meaningless, or as you just saw in the little video he showed us, that really not the best um, translation, particularly for our 21st century. Uh, this particular slide... It's from Dr. John Stevenson, and um, he indicates here that Proverbs is, is a basic approach to life, but there's exceptions to the Proverbs. Now, if you remember the week that we looked at Proverbs, we talked about whether or not they are really promises or whether they are just kind of general ideas. And um, Bruce Waltke is not, uh, I don't think, completely against the idea that they're, they're general statements. But he pushes a little back against that and says that um, there is a promise involved here. We just may not see it, to use Ecclesiastes' phrase, under the sun. We may not see it here. We may not get it until after. So, But with the, the general guideline that is often said about Proverbs, that they're, they're general statements, they're general truths, the exceptions are what is dealt with in Job, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. That's how um, Dr. Stevenson kind of views this. And so in Job, you have the idea that the righteous suffer. That's kind of an exception to the fact that the righteous are supposed to be blessed and rewarded. But the truth is, we, we find both sets actually in Proverbs too. Ecclesiastes, the lack of meaning to life. You're supposed to, you pursue after God, you should have this blessed life and you should find fulfillment and meaning. Like, yeah, but I'm not. And then Song of Songs, he, he puts it as the irrationality um, of love. So either way, that's how he connects these three to the book of Proverbs and how life is connected to them. So let's jump into the book, actually, of Proverbs, the, the title of the book, okay? Coming straight out of the English text, that's the Holman translation, says, The words of the teacher, son of David, a king in Jerusalem, Ecclesiastes 1.1. The word for teacher there is koholeth, and that word, it's a Hebrew word, um, means uh, to gather. So the Hebrew title for the book, which apparently meant the preacher's office, and then it became a term for the preacher himself. It's derived from the root uh, kahal, meaning to convoke an assembly or to gather, as it says up above, to address an assembly. So the author of the work so refers to himself in numerous passages, and therefore this is a fitting designation. The Greek term... Okay, Ecclesiastes is a good translation of the term, for it too means preacher and is derived from ecclesia, which you know as church or assembly. So that's where the title comes from, and that's why it's called uh, what it is. Now, in, um, in the Latin, it, it comes out somewhere else. The Septuagint renders the Hebrew title as Ecclesiastes, and so what you'll normally uh, find is that you have the Hebrew, it's translated into Greek, and then it goes into Latin, and then it goes into English. And so the question often becomes, does the English follow the, the Hebrew or the Septuagint, or the Latin? They're not always the same. <coughs> I think, I thought I actually had it up there. Maybe it's on another slide. It's called, uh, or maybe I'm confusing with uh, the other one. 
probably putting all this together together, so I should mention that one different way. Um, so that's the title of the book. <coughs> so let's look at the author and the date then. All right. So the traditional idea is that King Solomon wrote the book. That's the conservative idea. That's the traditional idea. That's what's been held to for uh, a long time. Back at 1 1 again, we see the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. So there's a couple of things here that uh, point out to us. If you're just reading the, the, the Bible for, for what it says, who's the son of David that was king in Jerusalem? Solomon. Well, it would be Solomon, right? So <coughs> he would be the teacher. So that's the, tra the, the traditional and Jewish view son of David, king of Jerusalem. And the Septuagint was grouped with other books that were attributed to Solomon, it was grouped with the Proverbs. And the Song of Solomon, both attributed to King Solomon after the Psalms. So you had Psalms written by who? King David. And then after that, you had these three books by his son Solomon. So that's how the Septuagint, 200-250 B.C., they organized it that way. So that tells you that in 250 B.C., the people translating the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek used the author as who? Solomon. indicates also that only Solomon and Rehoboam ruled from Jerusalem from the line of David. And so if it's going to be true to verse 1, that it's the son of David and king of Jerusalem, that kind of leads it to be Solomon. Many people think he, he wrote it later in his life, but how do we get uh, changed from him being the author? Well, Luther opens it for us basically. Yeah. Okay? So if you know anything about Luther, uh, you know... <coughs> sparked the Reformation with his 95 Thesis where he knocked down the door. Um, but you also probably know that he thought James was an epistle of straw, which means he didn't really think it belonged in Scripture. So Luther had some good things about him, and Luther had some things that weren't so good about him. So this is one of those things that he started uh, some things that maybe wasn't so good. <coughs> he speculated as to who the author was. He, did, he denied it was Solomon. So since then, we just have all of this material that the reasons why it's not. If somebody else unknown wrote it, then it's argued that it was probably written after the exile because the background doesn't fit the age of Solomon, according to Ed Young. And it was a time of misery and vanity. And these are the, the verses referencing it. And 1, 2 to 11, the splendor of Solomon's age was gone. It was a time of death had begun for Israel. Injustice and violence were present. There was uh, heathen tyranny. Death was preferred to life, and one man ruled over another man to, to their hurt. So those are some of the reasons that, that people give for rejecting uh, Solomonic authorship of it. Um, I hold to it. I think Solomon um, probably wrote it. So you'll have to make your own decision just about with everything. Then I want to look at the, the genre and the form. Genre, purpose, and form. Uh, within the genre of wisdom literature, there are several su sub-genres. Um, I think I was using my, uh, my voice protection here. I don't know what that is. Um, some of the more common that show up in the book of Ecclesiastes are the following. 
Okay, and I want to give you a little bit of an explanation of these. <coughs> um, these are coming from Sidney, um, I think, Gridenock or something. That's how you say his last name. He's got some last names, man, I tell you. Um, it's from his book, Preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes. Now, this, he's not the only place that you can get this information, but uh, this is what I pulled it out of um, this time around. Uh, his books, by the way, are excellent. If you've never heard of this guy, excellent on how to uh, preach Christ from the Old Testament without destroying the Old Testament passage and without just making stuff up. And he goes through uh, seven different ways, and what he does is he will break down the, the whole book. So if you're going to actually, if you're going to preach Ecclesiastes, like, you should probably get this book. I'm, I'm preaching Christ from Ecclesiastes, right? So he'll take each section of the book, he'll break it down, he'll exegete the, the main points, and then he'll um, explain, like, how to preach it. And he'll go through the seven ways that he has studied out and distilled down. And he'll look at each of the seven and say, does this one work with this passage or not? So all seven don't necessarily work with the passage. So, anyways, and that being said, okay, here are some of the subgenres uh, within wisdom literature. So the reason these are important is as you read Ecclesiastes, you should be looking for some of this. Okay, so reflection is the first one. That's that's kind of self-explanatory. It contemplates the deepest questions of life. You know, when you reflect on something, what do you do? You're thinking about it, right? And so that's what, that's what they're saying here. So there's, there's points where they're thinking about it. So you find um, first-person verbs, like, I applied my mind to it. I said to myself, I, I saw or I observed. So reflection has a loop structure. It begins with some kind of observation, which is then considered from one or more points of view, leading to a conclusion. And within it, one may find sayings or proverbs or anecdotes employed to develop or round out the thought. So an example, um, if you want to write it down, actually it's on the screen, it's 112 through 18. That's an example of that. You'll find proverbs, which you already know what proverbs are because we did a whole unit on it. <coughs> but they're found throughout Ecclesiastes, especially in chapters 7, 10, and 11. So, just short statements about life. Um, you'll also find instruction materials. Um, instruction is, is teaching in which the author seeks to persuade the reader toward or away from a certain course of behavior or thought. So they're trying to educate you. Uh, the word Torah, uh, it's not just law. It has to do with education. It has to be instructed in God's ways, the ways of Yahweh. The form of instruction is usually marked by one or more imperatives. So those are commands, okay? So do this, don't do that. That's an imperative. Frequently supported by motivations, reasons for obeying the commands. So chapter 5, 1 to 2, is an example of that. Instruction supported with uh, reasons. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Do not be hasty to speak, and do not be impulsive to make excuse before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. So you have these instructions, these commands, if you will, in the passage. The next one is autobiographical narrative. So this is a first-person description of a personal experience, real or imagined, or stylized as a literary fiction. Could be a description of a personal experience created by the biblical writer or editor for literary or theological or some other reason. 
So examples are um, in, in 112, uh, 2216, 723, 29, etc. An anecdote, sometimes called a parable, is a third person short story told in order to illustrate a principle or truth of interest to the author. You'll find examples of that in 9, uh, 13, 14. If you look at 9, 13 to 14, you see that he says, I've observed that this also is wisdom under the sun. And in its significancy, there was a small city with few men in it. A great king came against it, surrounded it, and built large siege works against it. Now a poor wise man was found in the city. He delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered the poor man. As I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and the words are not heeded. So, this is an anecdote. It's an example. You also find metaphor. Okay, metaphors are figures of speech in which a word or phrase literally denotes one kind of object or idea being uh, used in place of another by suggesting some kind of analogy or likeness between it. So, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 6, for instance, he says, uh, the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the jar is shattered at the spring, the wheel is broken into the well, um, the dust returns to earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So these are uh, four metaphors for a person's death. Um, the most repeated metaphor in Ecclesiastes is vanity, or vapor, or meaningless, or breath, which we'll get to what that means in a little bit, but... All of those different things. And the last one is allegory. An allegory is an extended metaphor. So you look at Ecclesiastes 12, 3 to 4. He says, On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the woman who, grind, who grind teeth because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors of the street are shut while the sounds of the mill fade. When one rises at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song grow faint. And so, here you have um, an allegory, which is a metaphor that has been taken and expanded or extended upon when an elderly person is described in terms of a house and its occupants. And so, those are some of the different subgenres that you're going to find within Ecclesiastes. So, what does that do for us? Well, those subgenres make it a little more difficult for us when we're reading it to figure out what, what the meaning is. Okay, because it's not so clear, so plain. Okay. <coughs> what about the purpose of it? The purpose was to convince men of the uselessness of any worldview which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. That's the Greek marker. So, in other words, if your whole life is just focused upon you and what your plans are, then the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to get you to adjust that and get him to be at the center of it. To get God, to get Yahweh to be at the center of it. Even though the name of Yahweh is not mentioned in the book, but we'll talk about that later. The structure of the book. The first thing that we notice is something called an inclusio. Okay, this is a sandwich structure. Okay, 
same uh, word or phrase. And the, the technical term is an inclusio, okay? And the generic term or example that I use, metaphor maybe, is it's a sandwich. Alright? So it's the two pieces of bread, alright? And everything in between is, is all the meat, right? Or it's the bookend, alright? So you got a line of books and you, and you put a bookend on each end, right? To hold up the books. That's what it is. Or it's the covers on the books, right? Holding all this together. So what is it that we get in 1, 2, and then in, in 12, 8? Well, in 1, 2, absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. And then you flip over to the end of the book in 12, 8, and he says, absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. And so those, those phrases that are the same, <coughs> marking this off, saying this whole thing goes together. In the structure of the book, you also have several sandwiched poems. You have the lack of gain from human toil in 1, 3 to 11. You've got a poem encouraging its reader to remember they're uh, created, they are created, before old age and death in 12, 1 to 7. And then you have <coughs> the two halves and the three questions that are asked. So for the structure of the book, how do we figure out the structure of the book. If you were to read a bunch of different authors or books on Ecclesiastes, you'd come away with a lot of different structures. I mean, literally, if you picked up ten commentaries on Ecclesiastes, you could end up with ten different structures. Now, hopefully they'll agree on some major points. Um, that would be good. And then maybe just some minor points. But Ecclesiastes is one of those books um, Until some people begin to wrap their heads around it. And so we have a couple examples of some proposed structures that are related specifically to this last one. Okay? So this last point and the first point. Alright? So that's like a sandwich, right? So my first and last points, I want you to really clue into. This idea of the inclusio, and then this idea of there's the book's divided into two halves. And there's three questions that kind of get asked. The first question, what is good for man to do? And then, who knows what is good for man, and who knows the future? So the first half is going to deal with what's good, and the last one is going to deal with knowing. How you know, who knows, whatever. Who knows? All right? They'll both say who know, right? So, with that being said, there is um, a structure by Addison Wright that has garnered quite a bit of support for it. One of the things that his structure has noticed, and what he did is, is he read through the book a lot, and he studied and looked for uh, phrases that are repeated, where they're repeated, and then you ask, you know, why are they repeated? So, for instance, if you have a particular phrase repeated at, let's just say, six intervals throughout the book, well, maybe that's a beginning or an end marker of session writing. And so then you go and you, you take that as a hypothesis and you see if it works. So he's got two sections right here. Okay? 
First one, the teacher, Coalesce, investigation of life. Okay. The second one, his conclusions on life. Okay, so from chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 9 is the first section. Chapter 6, verse 10 through basically the end of the book. I mean, there's an epilogue in, in chapter 12, but is the end. If you look, he has how many verses are in each section. And what I want you to notice, and which has been noted by multiple scholars after he did this, is that both halves of the book end up with 111 verses. No, that's not English verses. That's Hebrew. Um, so it's very symmetrical, if that's the case. <coughs> now, uh, Dr. Derushi has uh, mostly agreed with this. He's, he's picked up on this, but he's, he's adapted it a little bit for himself. And so this is his adaptation of that. So he has these questions, these queries, he says. All right, a little alliteration there. You got the prologue in, in verse 1, and then you got the epilogue in 12, 9 to 14. Part 1 is here, and part 2 is here. The, the motto in the beginning and the end, you can see, is all is vanity, or havel. We'll talk about that in a minute. An introduction and a concluding poem. And then here's the meat of the of the book. One twelve to six nine is the investigation of life, and six ten to eleven six is the conclusions of life. So, Darushi's taken it and uh, simplified it a little bit and made it into something that you can you know look at for teaching and whatnot. Um, in Preaching Christ and Ecclesiastes, he also uh, references um, not Darushi, but. Addison Wright's structure as well. <coughs> as I mentioned, not everyone's going to you know, agree with that. What you have to do as you're studying the scripture is you either start with a blank slate and come up with your own, or you take someone else's and start with theirs. Um, but either way, you got to go through the scripture, and, and you got to analyze it and make value judgments on it. And that's what they do. So if you read in some of the journal articles... Do any of your classes require you to read journal articles? Is that a no? I can do that for sure. I have a Okay, I have a journal. I have a journal. Okay, so... Um, you should have to at some point. Maybe I'll make you. So, anyways, journal articles are written by all the like PhD guys, okay? I mean, some of them might only have an, an MDiv or something. But most of them are either M or PhDs or on their way to a PhD. Um, and they're peer-reviewed. So what that means is that they don't just write it and it gets published. They write it and it gets looked at, edited, reviewed, then published, and then people interact with it. And so normally, this isn't always the case, but normally by the time you write a book, you've written multiple journal articles. And so people have interacted with your stuff. And so when Addison Wright puts that um, structure out there, He's written multiple journal articles. Actually, he has investigated um, his proposal in, multiple times. He went back year, years later and he did more research, and, he, and it, uh, uh, it substantiated his previous work. So my point is that the other articles will bounce back and forth with these proposals, and that's good because they'll pick up on stuff from the text. They'll say, yeah, but it's your um, – 
your structure does not account for how this happens over here or how this happens over here. So, for instance, well, one of the things that Jerushi says, if I can find this real quick for you, uh, just as an example of this, is that... Remind me with Song of Solomon. I think he, he says we must say it in the Song of Solomon in Matthew, right? So I just wanted to show you, like, they left out. He, he doesn't, um, yeah, Song of Solomon. He addresses one of the, uh, the structures arguments, and he says he doesn't account for the four places in Song of Solomon um, where the, the young lady speaks in place. So why are they there at those places? So this is the SPSE type of thing, all right? not by accident that they show up in those four different places, so you have to account for them in your structure. It can't just be like, yeah, I don't know how they did it. You have to try to figure out how they did it, right? Or your structure needs a little tweaking. That's the point that they were there with that. Alright, so the purpose is to convince to convince men of the use of any worldview which does not rise above the horizons of man himself, as Keith and Arthur had said earlier. So some of the themes that we get, and yeah, I'm going to skip that for a minute. <coughs> as we move to the first verse here, So, let's look at the first verse. It says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right, one, two, three, four, five times in one verse. Okay? The Holman says, absolute futility. Absolute futility, everything is futile. Okay? Now, the ESV translates it as a uh, superlative. Right? Just like Song of Songs, right? A superlative, the best of the best. So vanity of vanity, so the, the most vain of all vain things. Uh, however, I wouldn't use vain because that's going to give the, the wrong impression for us here. The Holman glosses it differently. Instead of using a superlative, um, they flesh it out and say absolute or the most futile. You with me on the difference here? Okay, so w what is it? Havel, Havelin. All right? Depending upon your Hebrew scholars, they will they will pronounce this as bees or bees. I, I think there's been a move in the last 20 plus years that they pronounce them more like bees than bees. Uh, when I was in seminary, it was kind of either or, and it moved more towards the, the bee pronunciation. So um, even though it looks like a bee, um, so Havel Havelin is the word. You can see that these are the same words. The the I am at the end in Hebrew means it's a plural, which is why you get vanity of, of vanities. And then the word, as you can see, is used in several other places in Scripture. So it's the same word for she gave birth to his brother, speaking of Eve, and Cain's brother, Abel, as we say it in English. That's the same word. Leave me alone, for my days are but a vapor, Job says in 7. 16. Uh, 
behold, you have made my days as handbreadths, my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Selah, Psalm 39.5. A charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Proverbs 31.30. So these are all different usages. And if you look at the text, Psalms and Proverbs are in the poetic and wisdom category. But Genesis is a simple narrative. So what, what does the word mean? It's used 38 times, okay, in the book. So it's obviously a key, a key word. One of the other things you do when you're trying to figure out a theme or a structure of a book is, or the message of a book, is, well, what words or phrases does it keep saying over and over? Like, not for no reason. The base meaning is a wisp of air, breath, or vapor. Like, just, it's, just by itself, that's what it means. But, with that being said, let me give you um, just a comment on dictionaries and, and language, etc. The truth of the matter is, even though we use them all the time, purchased many of them for Hebrew and Greek. You really can't just look up in a dictionary the meaning of a word and plug it into a sentence. So that's really not how language works. Because you can make a word mean kind of what you want in your sentence, right? Like one word doesn't have just one meaning. Um, in other words, think. What thought just came to your mind? When I say think, definitions out of four people for bank. It's all the same word. It's all spelled the same way. It's pronounced the same way. There's nothing different about the word. It's how it's used. And so how in the world do you know which one? You don't, except for the context of the sentence. So if I just say the words, literally you could argue, some people don't like this, but linguists would actually argue a word has no meaning in itself. It only has meaning when it's connected to other words in the sentence. And those words are what give it meaning. So what happens is you put it in the sentence, and then based on the context of that sentence, you're eliminating other meanings and narrowing down what it can mean. So if I say, <coughs> um, well, I was going to come up with an example for that, but uh, he missed that shot. He didn't bank it well. That's probably not even good commentary, whatever. Um, because of the phrases I put in there, you know that I'm not referring to a financial institution, right? So, and I'm also not referring probably, I don't think anyone said this one, but fishing off the bank, right? So there's, there's a fourth one. So it's the context that determines it. So the point of that is you can't just look up a, a Hebrew dictionary and say, oh, well, it means breath. So everywhere in Ecclesiastes, just translate it breath. So breath of breath. Or vapor of vapors, right? That's the new phrase. Forget, no one's using uh, vanity or meaningless anymore. It's, it's vapor from now on, okay? So, new law, I just made it. It's, it's vapor of vapors, okay? Um, that's not really how you do it. So, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry all of them. A breath will take them away. 
that's synonymous parallelism right there. Why does that matter? Because this is wind, and this is breath, two different Hebrew words, okay? And they're in a synonymous parallel relationship, which means they're saying the same thing. So here, breath is just like wind. So but whoever takes refuge in me will not inherit the land. Then Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. Intriguingly, the Old Testament writers referred to idols or other gods as vanities or empty things, nothings. Why? Because God's the real deal, and they're what? They're nothings. And so how do we, how do we put this into Ecclesiastes when he employs the same Hebrew word for vanities in the book of Ecclesiastes? So what you do is you look through these 38 occurrences, and if this is a class on Ecclesiastes and we have some group time together, I can give you the 38 occurrences. You can look them all up, and you look at what is he saying is meaningless or vanity or whatever, and, you, and I can say you can't use those phrases as one of them. Come up with your own phrase about what he's saying in those contexts. And that's how you begin to arrive at what the word means in these contexts. So... Um, these are a list of additional references and how it's translated or the meaning in those passages. And you can see, vain, foolish, empty, nothing, futile, a mere breath, uh, vapor, fleeting, idle, worthless, useless. That's several uh, different possible translations. Again, same thing. Worthless idols, worthless, useless, no purpose, nothing, a puff of air. So when, when he says there's no is meaningless or it's vanity or it's cabel, does he mean there's no purpose to it? Or does he mean it's fleeting? Or, I don't know if you're familiar with the NET translation, it's called the New English Translation. We come out of Dallas Theological Seminary. It's a, a free translation. I think it's supposed to be like the first free translation. Um, you can Google it. It's all free online, the whole translation is. And um, it used to be all the study notes are also. The notes alone Translated it in Ecclesiastes 8:10 as enigma, which is a little bit different than the others, but I will argue is probably closer. So potential categories are meaninglessness, absurdity. That's Fox. He wrote, um, I believe, the, the volume and Anchor Bible Commentary set. Um, Anchor Bible Commentary set is an extremely well known. It's very diverse. It's not very conservative most of the time, but they're top world scholars. It's the same set I was talking about before, the William Brown building. So, um, fleetingness, fleetingness, enigma, frustratingly enigma enigmatic. Now, I put that one in there. I think Jerusky actually has it in his notes as well. Um, when I studied in seminary, that is that was our conclusion of the matter, that phrase. Or utterly transitory by loopholes. Others would say they might have a metaphorical usage. So the use of refrains and the fact that all is Havel seems to require the same meaning for all 38 occurrences, is what Jerusalem says. Now, again, this is another of those um, 
semantic argument. <clears throat> Do all 38 have to have the same meaning? No, they don't have to. Because you could use bank any of the four ways you want within the same book. Now, Jerushi's argument is the fact that he's not just taking like that one statement. What he's doing, he's looking at the whole book, he's read the chapters, he's studied them out, and he's saying that what he says about all these different things, he says this is halal, this is halal, this is halal, and he says everything is halal. But the way he's using it, he's saying that lends to the idea that it's all the same. So it's either financial institutions for all of them, or basketball shop for all of them, or fishing for all of them, or whatever. <coughs> how this word is translated will depend on how one reads the book. Now, since the word is used 38 times, it's a key word, it starts a book, it ends a book, your view on that word is going to color how you read the book. The majority of commentaries and people that read Ecclesiastes think that it's extremely pessimistic book. book. The word is used in two ways for that which is unsubstantial, fleeting, and lacking in permanence, and for specific situations for which mortals can find no answer, and in that sense are enigmatic, that could be enigmatic, or illusory. Okay, and this is from Luke Waltzine's Old Testament theology book, and I think he's getting this partly from um, a scholar by the name of uh, Sao, or So, probably So, that's his last name. <coughs> and so, Based on this idea, they have divided the book into two parts. So again, we're in agreement with this two-part thing. The first part being temporarily fleeting, and the second part being intellectually futile. So you can take those, those two ideas, and as you read through Ecclesiastes again, one of the things you can do is you can take the two that he lists there, and then you can take the, the two that... Uh, Jerushi summarizes it, <coughs> and you can you can see uh, what you think about it. Remember, he says the investigation of life and the conclusion of life. So, life is temporarily fleeting. Life is intellectually futile. So, you read through, and what kind of words might you be looking for if it's about intellect in part two? that I had the, the two questions. The first one was about what is good, right? And then the second one was, uh, there was two questions on the second one, but they both had to know in it, right? Or who can know? And so the word know could be related to that. So temporarily fleeting and intellectually futile. And then we have these other two ideas of what is good and who can know, right? And so you see how those split in, fit in concept. Combined with the chase and the pursuit of the wind in the first half of the book, and combined with find not, find and know not in the second half of the book. Now, wh what do I mean by that? Okay, let's look at a couple of these uh, passages so that I can demonstrate to you what I mean. 
So the first half of the book, there's seven occurrences in 114 to 69 that combine this Hevel with chasing or pursuing of the wind. So if you look at 114, it says, I found that everything should be futile, a pursuit of the wind. In 211, then he says again, I found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind, nothing to be gained under the sun. 217, he says the same thing, everything is futile, a pursuit of the wind. So seven times in the first half of the book, that phrase is mentioned. Now, I don't think that's actually done. The, the interesting thing is that phrase changes in the second half of the book. So in the second half of the book, it changes to this combination of either uh, find or not find, or know and not know. And so in 7.14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man cannot discover every, anything um, that will come <coughs> after him. Futile life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who lives long and is led evil. I have no sense of that. In verse 14, verse 23. What exists is beyond reason and very deep. Who can discover it? There it is in, in verse 24. I'll have to double check that 714 reference. Um, in 728, uh, my soul continually searches for, but does not find among a thousand people. I have not, I have found one true man, but among all these, I have not found a true woman. So that's twice it's in there, not found. Then the no and the not no are in the other verses, start, starting in 9, it looks like. So it looks like in chapter 7 and 8, you've got find and not find. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, you've got no and not no. You've also got, thirdly, the usage of good, tov, okay? So God saw that it was, well, good, right? Same word, tov, okay? Used 11 times in 7, 1 to 14, including two times in the first and the last verse, all right? So all of these things go together for cohesion. Remember the um, SPSC principle, right? You mentioned the chair. All these pieces fit together like a puzzle to make a unified, cohesive whole. Um, there is an interesting thing that there's no use of Havel in chapter 10. And the pivot point is argued is chapter 6, verse 12. Because remember, that's where it changes from part 1 to part 2, right? Because chapter 1 goes to uh, 6, uh, what, 6, 9? And then it picks up and moves to the part 2. So, does that all make sense with you guys so far? that we're looking at related to the structure. So as, as you read through the book, as, as you would study the book, you would want to see if those those pan out. And if so, then that's how you would be interpreting it. The phrase under the sun is another very important phrase in the book. It's used 29 times. Only Ecclesiastes uses the phrase under the sun in the whole Old Testament. You can find it anywhere else. So it's used 29 times in the Bible, and, or in the Old Testament, and 29 times by uh, Ecclesiastes. However, Phoenician, Akkadian, Elamite, and Greek writers used the same phrase. So this is where looking outside the Bible is also beneficial. So you're like, well, what does this word mean? 
Now, if you find it written in another source, does that mean that's what it has to mean in the Bible? What does it do for us? Well, it helps us to see how it was used in the regular rest of the culture. It's kind of like this. Um, if I use the word cool, all right, so I'm a Christian, I just use the word cool, right? So you're so cool, right? Um, and someone's like, I don't know what that means. Well, they make their mouth easy and sweet, they find a good book over here, they find it on someone's web post here. Um, they can use those to figure out what they think I mean. Now, they might be right, they might not be right. They also, in my case, they might have to take into consideration my worldview, right? I may mean something different, or I may not mean something different. So, you share certain things with the culture. Now we're into the shared pool of knowledge again, right? You see how these things come up all the time? So, uh, the, the Hebrews share a lot with their neighbors. They might have a different worldview, but they share a lot of language, they share a lot of culture, they share, share a lot of customs. So there are words, there's like 500 plus words in the Hebrew Bible that occur one time. Well, how do you figure out what a word means when it only occurs once? Like if you saw the word bank, you'd never heard it before. You saw it in one sentence, and you've never seen it anywhere else in your life before. Would you know what to do with it? No, not really, right? So these 500 words, they have... Like they searched, I mean, these, these scholars, guys, you know, they, they looked at all these Semitic languages and Akkadian and Ugaritic and all this type of stuff, and these 500 words don't show up anywhere else. Now, there was more than 500 at one time, and you can only imagine how excited these, these guys were, like they're word freaks, right? So how excited they were, oh, look it, we found it, let's say tablet, it's got the word on it, right? Now we can maybe figure out what it means. So what does that mean for us as students of the Bible? Well, it means there's 500 words in the Old Testament that culture, what does it mean? It refers to existence on planet Earth. So, what do you do with that? Well, you take it and you plug it in Ecclesiastes and you say, does that fit in Ecclesiastes? So when he talks about uh, life under the sun, is he talking about life on planet Earth? And the short of it is, get me this. Because that's what it means. That's what he's talking about. So, rather than live under the sun, Stevenson says, we're to live with the sun. That UN versus SO one, right? So, He's going to uh, compare the phrase under heaven, which is used three times, probably in contrast to under the sun, in contrast to Tremper Longman, who takes it as a synonymous phrase. Now, um, one of the things that you'll have to get used to, and I think I've probably already said it enough times, but you'll have to get used to the idea that as, as you delve into the scriptures, Scholars disagree with each other. Tremper Longman is an expert in religion, literature, and poetry stuff. He's written a bunch of books on it, etc. Um, but he's also developed his own theory, if you will, about stuff. So he has more of a pessimistic view of Ecclesiastes. He thinks some things are, are kind of uh, 
phrase unconditional or un, or non-conditional about it. <coughs> he thinks under heaven is the same thing as under the sun. So uh, I, I don't know that I do. I think it's probably contrasting with it. Uh, Irushi would agree with, with my stance on that. I think Barris would agree with that also. You have to analyze the situation and figure out what it was saying. All right. Here is some of the phrases about under the sun. The smarter you get, the harder it is to cope with the world. Pleasure and riches do not satisfy. Wise men and fools die alike. You can't take the results of your hard work with you when you die. What you leave behind goes to a generation who didn't earn it. The results of your labor don't really satisfy your desires. People practice evil instead of justice. Even obedience to God doesn't guarantee a long, happy life, and the wicked sometimes get away with it. So all of these phrases, you, you take them, you read them. So someone's already done the hard work for us, right? They've already just pulled them out of the scriptures. And you say, and all of these are talking about under the sun. Are they talking about life on earth? Does that fit in? If they're talking about life on earth, and even as a believer... Everything isn't always peachy just because you're a believer or a follower of God. Um, <coughs> ignorance is what? Bliss, right? There is a level of truth to that, right? It goes to this first one. Because the more you know, some, yeah, like, you're like, I wish I didn't know that, you know? So ignorance really is bliss sometimes. Um, Missouri when I was going to seminary and youth pastor and I took a, a group of uh, special ed kids and they would go like every Friday they went on like a power trip because they're like I don't want to call it locked down it's kind of a, a strange word but they're all in wheelchairs and whatnot so like they don't get recess they can't like they don't have any of that they're all in wheelchairs they're wheelchair bound situation, they don't usually <coughs> get taken to McDonald's because it's such a hassle for the parent and because they really can't benefit from what McDonald's has. Am I, are you tracking with me? Yeah. So anyway, they would take them to places like that. So anyway, I was there and I was you know, watching these kids and this is the whole like like the Jerusalem Twist thing. Like, you would just see these elementary kids in their wheelchairs and they're not even playing. They're just there watching everything. And they seem to be like the happiest kids that there are. So it's just an example, I think, of like the ignorance and stuff. Like they don't know the other side of things. They, they don't know, you know, I mean, they can see, I guess, some of what they're missing. But anyway. <coughs> One of the other themes of the book is to enjoy life. Um, there's a chiastic structure in uh, 5, 1 through 6, 9. 
that pivots on chapter 520. Remember not the days to come. And then in the second half of the book, there is a, an urging to remember the days to come. And then he says, all is Hevel, so you should enjoy life. So there's this idea here about do you remember or do you not remember it? And it has to do with your worldview and what we're talking about. So there is a remembering of the days to come because things aren't always going to stay the way they are. But in Ecclesiastes, there is also this, this movement towards fear of God, Proverbs 1.7 all of the Hebrew wisdom literature is going to be narrowed and focused in on this idea of fearing of God. And so, <clears throat> you don't be worried about the days to come, but at the same time, under the idea of fearing God, you do think about the days to come, because you're going to have to answer to your creator. Remember the creator, right? And so there's this idea of, don't worry about it, and also, careful how you live. So fear of God and enjoying life, <laughs> And then enjoying life, life is seen as a gift from God to be enjoyed with sober gratitude. So the idea, again, is that because everything is so fleeting, because of how things are in life, you do need to enjoy life while you can. So we really did not um, land on, except when I commented to you where, where I stand with the Havel, so frustratingly enigmatic is, I think, what kind of encapsulates it. It's frustrating because things don't go how we expect or want them to. And it's also mysterious. Enigmatic is like mysterious. So it's frustrating and mysterious because they don't go how we think they should. And also, um, you can't figure it out. Like, try as hard as you want, but you can't figure it out. Even if you think you have it figured out curveball, right? And so this frustratingly enigmatic aspect of life. So what do you do with it? Like, I mean, I don't know if it's once you get to a certain age you start thinking about things like this, but like I think about things like this. You know? Life is frustrating. Life is mysterious. Life does not make sense. You you follow this path and think you'll end up here and you don't end up here. So why did I follow this path? And so he's saying Enjoy what you have. Enjoy what has been given to you. So enjoy the, the simple things in life. Um, a good meal. Eating and drinking. That's how it's phrased in Ecclesiastes. Relationships. Enjoy these things because they're all gifts from God. And at the same time, remember that you should fear God. Folly, foolishness, okay, from Proverbs. Foolishness, folly, is never recommended as an option. He doesn't say it's, it's all worthless, it's meaningless, so just go do what you want. He doesn't say that, because there's actually a, a refrain that's repeated that you need to remember that you, you are going to have an answer to the Creator. There's about 42 references to God. How many references to Havel were there? So, anyways, there's more references to God, though. There's 42. Uh, 316 to 612. 
David Dorsey says, this is the center of the book's chiastic structure. Okay, so David Dorsey has written this book. This is a commentary, but it's, it's uh, not the type of commentary you expect. It's called The Literary Structure of the Old Testament. And so it's only the Old Testament, as the, the title says. And basically, all through the Old Testament, everywhere, are these chiastic structures. Okay? And in Ecclesiastes, he holds that the, the center of the whole book is 3.16 to 6.12. And the focus and point of 3.16 to 6.12 is fear God. So if you look at this whole section, and then remember this, before I, I read anything from the text there, remember 6.12 is uh, also been listed previously as a, a key verse in the uh, part one to part two aspects. Verse 12 says, Who knows what is good for man in life? In the few days of his peace-style life, if he spends like a shadow, who can tell man what will happen after him and under, under the sun? So life on earth, life under the sun, um, who knows how it's going to be? You don't know the outcome of it. And so from chapter 3, verse 16, through chapter 6, verse 12, is the argument that this is about the, the fear of God. And that's kind of the, the pivot point of, of the book. Each successive discussion, he says, in the series, throughout 3, 6 to 6, 12, except for 5, 1 through 7, is introduced by first-person observations, beginning with I have seen, or variations thereof. So that brings you back to the earlier stuff we talked about, about reflections, right? Um, in this unit, the author considers various phenomena in life that defy reason, and apply that there's no overall divine plan, no big picture to believe in, including some cruel reali realities in this world that seem to make it impossible to truly enjoy the life God gives. So the author structures most of the discussion in two parts. Um, disturbing observations and then considerations that mitigate against despair. So things look really horrible, but here's why we shouldn't give up hope. For example, he begins by pointing out that wickedness and injustice often triumph over justice in chapter 316. But then he expresses a belief that keeps him from despair. God will one day judge the wicked and the righteous. So under the sun seems like there is no justice. But, there's not just life under the sun. There is life with the sun, there is a future judgment, there is there's more to it. And Ecclesiastes isn't, uh, isn't the book that says that. That's part of Wall Street's point with the book of Proverbs. He has a whole lecture series called The Proverbs Promise Too Much. And it's about what I've referred to before. Are they, are they promises, or are they just uh, mostly general truths? And as I indicated before, Walkie pushes a little bit towards the idea that there is a promise in there from God. You just might not see it under the sun, to use Ecclesiastes' term. So, um, Dorsey tentatively suggests that this section comprises seven different parts arranged all with this symmetry again. And so, he sees all of this uh, symmetrical, chiastic um, structure throughout here. And so, you should keep your promises God because of the fear of God. So chapter 5, verse 1 through 7 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer sacrifice like fools for the ignorant to do wrong. We read part of this earlier. Do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you're on earth, so let your words be few. For dreams result from much work and a fool's voice from many words. When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. It's better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. 
Yeah, which, by the way, this is out of Old Testament. It's kind of interesting. Leviticus chapter. Uh, do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the works of your hands? For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, fear God. That's chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. And then, if you know how the book ends, in chapter 12, what's the conclusion of the matter? Fear God is his commandment. So, the idea that the fear of God is a prominent theme uh, seems to be uh, accurate based on the words used and, and the structure of the book. <coughs> Any questions um, on that so far? Okay, so we've looked at the main ideas and the structure and how that fits together. As I mentioned, uh, Dr. Derushi kind of agrees with the idea of the frustratingly enigmatic aspect. And so he, he puts it like this. He says, ultimate enigma, says uh, Coalesce, ultimate enigma, all is enigma. And I know you've never read a translation of this text, have I? Um, so it's one of the benefits. I mean, well, you can do the same thing. It's okay. Anybody can make a translation of something. But so... Life is unsatisfying, it's repetitive, it's troublesome, and it creates high levels of puzzlement, mystery, and even vexation for the believer and the non-believer alike. And so, God has made our life under the sun this enigmatic aspect, which causes this frustration. The, the purpose of God and the grace and kindness of God get dimmed because of these various things in, in life. And so, the author, so Solomon, what did Solomon have the opportunity to do in his life? Explore every aspect of everything he wanted, right? He had all the money in the world, he had all this wisdom God gave him, so where did he use it for? To explore all these things and figure out, so where did he find out? He said one thing that matters is the fear of God. So if you grasp that as the as the view, as the grid, the world view, through, through which you look at Ecclesiastes, then not quite a completely pessimistic book, and there there is uh, light in the tunnel, and there's this this hope that is offered when you when you look at God. So this world is, is not all that it is. So the proper response then <coughs> is uh, that God wants to see dependence upon His people who fear Him. In Ecclesiastes seven thirteen to fourteen, He says, "Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked?" In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In Ecclesiastes 3, 11 and 14, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So I perceive that whatever God does, not, does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. And in 5.7, which we already read, dreams increase and words grow many, there's an enigma, but God is the one that he must fear. This idea in uh, 3.11 and 14, that God has put eternity in man's heart. This is another word or phrase that uh, it's probably accurate. That's how m m most people think of it. 
So I think that I, I agree with that. And that being the case, that's kind of another thing. It's kind of like the Romans 1 and the conscience. That's the other conscience that God's given you. And all of creation tells God's glory. So he has general revelation telling him that God is good. So you kind of put this idea within us that we know there's more. Like you can't be all there is. And these are all just these glimpses, these glimmers, the creation, the conscience, and this, this idea in your heart that you know there's something more, that, that God has kind of pulled people to himself. Um, not, not for them to know Jesus, that they need the gospel to, to fill them with the gospel, but it's this, uh, this general grace of God drawing people to himself. So that we could be dependent upon him, that we could fear him, um, and then that we could even um, have a desire um, to, to prosper, like here and in the future. So uh, you might not gain completely here, but there is a, there's a gain in the future. So keep your eyes focused, not just on, on the, the here and the now. All right, do you have any questions? sense of what you've read and that you've studied? comments um, it was getting late so I was like you better print your outlines that you have um, this afternoon and then I went back and added them so in chapter 2 he talks about uh, pleasures and um, and how they don't fulfill and in, in verse 1 through 3 he talks about entertainment and 4 to 6 edifices buildings and 7 to 8 earnings and how these things don't don't um, fulfill. He says, I said to myself, go ahead, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile or frustrating in any matter. I said about laughter, it's madness. And about pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly. My mind is still guiding me with wisdom. And so I should see what is good for people to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So when he says how to grasp folly, he wasn't going after foolishness. That's why he said, my mind's still guiding me with wisdom. He says, I increased my achievements. This is verse 4 now. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted every kind of fruit tree in them. So he's building all these things. So he's the, uh, he's the general contractor. He's the builder. He's, you know, he's got all this stuff all over the place. Um, I acquired all this, this stuff, servants and, and cattle. And in verse 8, silver and gold and uh, singers in verse um, 8. And so I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Okay? My wisdom also remained with me, and all that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. And I did not refuse myself any pleasure, for I took pleasure in all my struggles. This was my reward for all my struggles. And when I considered all that I had accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be what? Frustrating and enigmatic. Okay? 
and in pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under uh, the sun. So all these things, they, they flesh out that you can chase after pleasures, but if that's all you chase after, at the end of the day, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. What's, um, what's frustrating? Some people were just in our, our first class. So you have a, a pharaoh in Egypt, and he builds up this great kingdom, and then he dies, right? And his son does what with it? Isn't that, isn't that the thing with life? Like, that's why, like, some people are so, I don't know what, what word I want to use, but uh, particular maybe with, like, their will or whatever. Like, who am I going to leave this to? What are they going to do with it, you know? Um, you, you can't know what someone's going to do with it. So that's the best way to say it. Um, Hammurabi, <coughs> which you know, some of you from our, our earlier class, um, when it relates to this idea, he was the builder. Hammurabi became king. He constructed a throne. The wall of the sacred precinct, um, Gajia, was built. He constructed, he constructed. There's, there's missing stuff in these because they find these broken tablets. The canal, okay, he constructed a throne. He constructed a throne. The great wall of Sephar was built. He redug the canal. Um, abundance for the people, da, da 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 So what is it? He's building all this stuff. He's building, he's building, he's just building. But what happens to Hammurabi eventually? Misha in 2 Kings uh, chapter 3, they, they found the, um, this inscription fr from um, the time period of Misha. And he says, I am Misha, the song of uh, Chemosh, king of Moab. And I built Baal Meon, making a reservoir in it. And I built Kiryatan. It was I who built uh, Karho, the wall of the forest and the wall of the citadel. I also built its gates and I built its towers and I built the king's house. And I made both of its reservoirs for water inside the town. And, and I cut beams for Karho with Israelite captives. And I built Aurora and I made the highway in the Arnon Valley. I built um, Beth Bamoth for it had been destroyed. I built Nazar for it lay in ruins. So he built, he built, he built. But what happens to Misha? Dies, right? So we, we have this evidence from all these, these things, you know? In chapter 3, verse 1 through 8, you have a little bitty chiastic structure here. For everything in a point of time, a time for every event. Okay? These are saying the same thing. These are saying the same thing. <coughs> it continues on in chapter 3, if I'm not mistaken, to give all of these parallel passages that go back and forth here. Okay? So you have a plus sign, it's a positive, a negative sign is, is, a, is a negative, right? So he starts out, he says, a positive thing to a negative thing. Then negative to a positive. Then you got a negative positive and positive negative. So you have this going back and forth of this parallelism talking about um, <coughs> the, the vanity or, or frustratingly enigmaticness of these things. The, um, the, the more you study the scriptures, um, the Hebrew scholars will get into, uh, not rhyme, uh, syllables. They'll, they'll argue how, um, I think the word biblical commentary does this quite a bit. Um, they will list out the syllables and show you how they're structured for a reason with syllable counts. So uh, there really is an intricate detailness to the scriptures. Um, this is the Hebrew word olam for, in, in chapter 3, verse 9 and 22, we just talked about this with the eternity in their hearts. Um, world, eternity, um, ignorance. These are the, these are your choices of, of what it could mean. 
And so you have to decipher through the passage and, and figure out which one uh, it does mean in that uh, passage. Uh, and then Stevenson summarizes it with saying there's a monotony to life, an emptiness to wisdom, futility in wealth, and a certainty of death. Um, we all know those sayings. puts it as uh, five sermons. Now, he doesn't he doesn't follow the same uh, linguistic literary type structure that we have. Well, I put this in here just because it. Oh, I won't say this. sermons, Solomon's story, the seasons of life, enjoying the journey, what you want in life, and investing in your life. And then you've got these conclusions down here. Um, in order to 14, there's monotony, there's emptiness, there's futility, and there's certainty of death, which is what you just saw on the, on the previous thing. He summed that up. But that's a little cool way to explain it. So, anyways, um, that really is uh, the end of it. And then there is one more video that is going to take you through. So the Bible Project does two different types of videos. And you've seen an example of, of both at this point. The one you saw in the beginning of class is, is one type, and then the other one they do is called, uh, I think it's called uh, Read the Scriptures. And so that's more of what we're doing here with the, the literary structure. So I'm going to play that one, and then we're going to take a break. <laughs> 